You're listening to From Woke to Work, The Anti-Racist Journey. My name is Kamala Avila Salmon, and I gotta be real with you. A black square on your Instagram does not make you an anti-racist, but there is a path. Join me as I guide you from becoming aware of racial injustice to actually doing something about it. Whether you're an ally ready to take action or just a Black person looking for someone else to answer all those ally questions, you're in the right place. It's time to go from woke to work. Hey guys, welcome back to From Woke to Work, the anti-racist journey. I'm your host, Kamala Avila-Salmon, and today we're going to dive into the first stage of our journey. This stage should be familiar to most of you because it is where even the least woke person in your life was for at least a second back in April, when the murder of Ahmaud Arbery while jogging finally made national news. Or maybe later the same month when Breonna Taylor's murder while sleeping made the news. Or maybe it was in May when the murder of George Floyd was the video watched around the world. Or was it when Amy Cooper and Chris Cooper's encounter went viral that same weekend? All in all, it felt like for the first time as a country, the country that tried so hard to ignore the clear epidemic of systemic racial injustice and anti-Black violence, we really couldn't ignore it anymore. Protests rocked every major city and extended to small suburbs too. I remember one day when I was driving in a wealthy, mostly white neighborhood in LA and seeing a pop-up protest of three to five white people with Black Lives Matter signs. And I was honestly like, what is happening here? Now, not to be too cynical, I felt pretty confident that those white people probably had more Black Lives Matter posters than they did Black friends, but still, it was happening. Somehow, some kind of way, four years after Philando Castile, five years after Sandra Bland and Freddie Gray, six years after Eric Garner and Michael Brown and Tamir Rice, seven years after Renisha McBride, 11 years after Oscar Grant, 65 years after Emmett Till, white people finally looked up and realized all at once, damn, this country's racist. Now, I know it sounds like I'm making a joke, but I'm really not. I want you to really think about what it would mean to be a Black person living through all of these traumas and so many more and feeling like the rest of the world was oblivious to it all. And then having that fact confirmed when the whole world woke up all at once, all at the same time in the year 2020. But as delayed as it was and as upsetting as it was to realize that none of the prior traumas really broke through in that way before, I don't want to undersell either what it means to finally, finally have the country's attention. So today I invited my good friend, Jovi and Zane, to join me as we talk about awareness, what it means and what it is in the journey towards anti-racism. Now. Not to overhype it, Jovian is one of the dopest women that I know, period. You're welcome for introducing you to her, if this is your first time hearing her. We met when I was working at Bad Boy Records, and I was leading the marketing for the then newly signed, now mega, mega star, Janelle Monet. Jovian is the sister of one of Janelle's primary creative collaborators, and she had an energy that was undeniable from the beginning. Since then, she's become a star in her own right. She's the CEO of the On Purpose Movement, a certified leadership professional development coach, 
a consultant, a public speaker with nearly 15 years of experience in change management, global leadership development, and diversity, equity, and inclusion. She is the perfect person to kick off this series because as a public speaker and a coach and an expert on DEI, she literally raises awareness for a living. Jovi, welcome, welcome, welcome to the pod. Well, look at me and my brown skin blushing. Thank you, Kamala. What an intro. It is so great to join you on the pod for this incredible new platform that you developed. I'm hype. I'm excited. Uh, and don't be gassing me. I'm, <laughs> I'm not an expert, <laughs> but I will say I am a Black person living. And I think the expertise that we all carry in our bodies and in our bones and in our experience is valid. Uh, and if we can find the courage and the time to share, it is important. That's where I come to you from with that excitement and that sense of purpose in that. So thank you for having me. Of course. Listen, that right there is real. The lived experience makes us experts in racism in America because that's not a textbook experience. I have lived it. I have lived it. I have lived it. Now, of course, that doesn't mean we all need to be training and facilitating and teaching and all of that kind of good stuff because it, it is skill. But I do want to just honor the fact that our lived experiences are real. And because of the consistent gaslighting that is that many of us are experiencing, I think just naming that your lived experience is valuable and it is worth exploring and sharing is important because we're being talked out of it daily. We're being talked out of the lived truth of ours on a regular basis. So it's important to affirm. Well, let's just get into it then. Okay. Over the years, you and I have had so many conversations about the infuriating state of racial injustice in our country, especially police brutality, but not even limited to that. None of this is new. So can you let me know when you first realized that this moment, especially for non-Black and white people, was getting them aware of this problem in a different way? Yes, in a different way, I would say. I think 2020 has been this, and I'm careful as I say this, and I hope you hear my heart in this, everybody who's listening, but it has been a beautiful calamity and a monstrous reckoning on every level for those of us who identify as humans. And I think because of the direct effects of the COVID-19 pandemic or indirect effects, the pandemic of racism as it is, the effects of climate change that we're feeling more insistently in our lived experiences, no matter where you are in the globe. We're in a time right now in 2020 where I think it is really hard for us to escape the effects we have on one another. A lie that white supremacy would often want to tell us is that we are true individuals who have no bearing on another individual's lived experience, that we are not connected. When I deeply believe, and I know you would believe this too, we are deeply interconnected. And the responsibility of sharing a planet, the responsibility of sharing time, literally like on earth with other people matters. And I think that has become more real during this season, a season when we've been forced to actually be apart. The things that have happened when we once were together even more have become of more consequence and more readily available to understand. So I think the pandemic of racism and the reckoning that is existing right now for me has just become more and more present. And yeah, I think there were hot pockets you know, in 2016, I think in 2014, we think about the killings and the blatant shootings 
of Michael Brown, Trayvon Martin, the beautiful souls in Charleston who were killed just having Bible study, Sandra Bland, I mean, Emmett Till. We could go down the list and speak of the tragedies and the tragic killings of Black people that before have led to this moment. But I think now, for a lot of the things that I said before, it is making it more prevalent to people. It's just, oh my gosh, wait, something's up. And honestly, I would say, Kamala, though every moment has led to this moment, you know? And so I hate when we refer to beautiful souls who have been lost at the hands of people who believed in racist policies and ideologies as just hashtags or passing names because they truly are, they are humans. They had dreams, they had goals, they had families, they had ups and downs, like they were of consequence and they mattered. And what I take from that so often is what I really try to do is I try to bear the responsibility and carry a burden in my heart of honoring their life through constantly acknowledging how real they were. Like they existed for a reason. And so when I look at the span of time for at least, let's just say the last 20 years, when we've had an increase in internet experiences and connection and social media and how things have been captured. Like many people have said, and I think Will Smith was quoted famously saying it, though I know others said it too, just like racism is a new, it's just being captured. I think the, the capture of it all is becoming more and more intense. And I think each life that was captured for other people to see has meant that the next story that would tragically come hits differently. So good. I love what you said about this moment being one of monstrous reckoning. Mm-hmm. I think most people agree 2020 has been challenging to say the least, but I've never gotten to the point of cancel 2020. That's good. Because I actually feel like we maybe needed 2020 on a certain level in a way that I wish we didn't. Yeah. Because to your point, like none of this is new, but everything that was leading to this moment just so kind of came together in a way that you can't call beautiful. You can only call monstrous, but it is a moment of reckoning. It's this flashpoint. Yeah. What's been so interesting to me about this moment in particular is in so many ways, the murder of Eric Garner and George Floyd are actually not that different. No, not at all. In both instances, we had a Black man accused of a low-level petty crime, Eric Garner selling loose cigarettes, George Floyd supposedly using a counterfeit bill at a store, interestingly enough, to buy cigarettes, being stopped by police officers, choked by police officers in broad daylight, while passersby watched, shot video, tried to intervene. The Black men in both situations said, I can't breathe, before succumbing to injuries, being pronounced dead the same day. So the response from the Black community to both of those cases was swift and similar. I even think the media coverage immediately following was swift and similar. But strangely enough, for white America, George Floyd's death hit different. They heard what happened Mm -hmm. to Eric Garner. They were like, that's unfortunate. Somehow they knew what happened to George. And it was so clear that it was an injustice. 
when we think about what awareness means, like awareness is not just hearing that something happened. Awareness is knowing it on a deeper, different level. So I'm just curious, you touched on it a little bit, but what do you think is that difference between hearing that something happened and knowing it in a different way? And why is it only happening now? I was deeply traumatized by Eric Garner. Yeah. Gosh. When I hear their names, I see their deaths. Yeah. And that just is so piercing to me. And um, gosh, I just have to pause that for that because just should not be, should not be. Right. Like, like the idea that when you hear another person's name, what you picture is the extinguishing of their life. Like I was speaking to another woman who had a brother who was killed by police, but it was also captured on camera. And what she said has haunted me for so long because she said, imagine knowing that there is a video of your family member being killed that someone can watch at any time that they want to. Oh Like, Oh my God. Yeah, it is. Oh, goodness. So incredibly disturbing. And yet another reason why we have to move from the place of stark awareness to the action. But to the question that I believe you asked around, like, how does the awareness sit with you differently? So Dr. Barbara Love, who is just incredible, and I absolutely love uh, think of her as like a warrior and a, a shiro and a guide. She talks about this cycle of liberation and what does it take to get your mind free? And when we talk about what that cycle looks like, the place of awareness begins with cognitive dissonance. You know, it begins with, wait a minute, what I thought isn't like something is up. So wait, I thought it was just a few bad apples. But if I actually look at the data, oh, the data is showing there may, oh, not may, there is a persistent issue of police violence specifically against communities of color and even more specifically against black people. Oh, and if I look at the data, wow, I'm trying to hold this idea that there is value in the way that our current police system is structured, but the data says that policing was founded in connection to slavery. And it was an attempt to keep black folks, quote unquote, in their place and their place being enslaved. Okay, and so slave catchers were the early form of police. Even understanding that idea and having uh, an experience where you can make that kind of connection, like between the the creation of police to the way that policing is being done in our country and disproportionately brutalizing black lives to a video of the deaths of George Floyd or to Eric Garner or Philando Castile. We can we can share other names, right? Those are those kind of critical incidents that Dr. Barbara Love would talk about that create the cognitive dissonance. That's like the wake up. Oh my gosh, something's up. And so from there, then it is, you've got to channel that moment of, wait a minute, something isn't what I thought it was. And I'm now completely uncomfortable with this, the former truth that I thought I had in order to be able to wrestle with this new understanding of a lived experience and a real truth that's happening in the world for other people. Moving from the cognitive dissonance to the interpersonal. So when you're engaging with other people and you're recognizing that I'm open to hear other stories, 
that helped me to affirm this new understanding that I have. And I think that is critical for people to go to, specifically to white folks who have once held on to this notion of bad apples or there are bad people who do racist practices. There's racist behavior, but they don't fully understand, as Dr. Ibram Kendi talks about so beautifully in his book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, and many others do too, the racist policies and ideologies and procedures that have put us in this place. This isn't a collection of just one simple behavior after another, but we have been socialized. Even those of us who are on the end of oppressive behavior, we have been socialized and we are incentivized to keep up the systems that we purport to want to buck. To be liberated of what we're currently living in, it requires a lot more. That's just like that first little phase. Can I also just say this, Kamala? I thought this was really interesting. When we talk about this idea of what happened and why is this all of a sudden coming to bear? Our news and the way that we, the people, have created, like we are truly enforcing the news now, the way that technology has allowed us to create our own news cycles and to be the ones to release breaking news before former mainstream news outlets can get to it. I think that has really increased the awareness of some people because they're seeing it on their timelines. We're seeing hashtags white privilege where people, white folks, have started to express and get into cahoots around, oh, wait a minute, let me tell you the story about when I got pulled over by the police and I literally didn't think anything. I continued to smoke a cigarette in his face and sharing all the things that happened, (laughs) you know, every time they've started to recognize they're experiencing white privilege, everything from you know what, when I go into a store and I know I want to speak to the manager, I never question or think about the person who's going to come on the other side of that authorized personnel only won't be someone who looks like me. You know, and that within itself being such a critical space of privilege that people of color do not carry in the world. And then how that translates. So it's heavy. It's really heavy. Yeah, I think there's so many great points in there. The one that I just want to double click on is this idea that when the awareness hits you in the right way, you become open to more confirming narratives. Yes. You start to seek those out. And I think that there, there's a weird sense of almost like it was like all at once, a large group of non-Black people opened their minds to the idea that what if Black people hadn't been making it up the whole time? Yes. What if they had actually been telling the truth? Yeah. What if there is another experience out there that is different than mine, but is also real? Absolutely. Right? That's what it is. Yep. 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 Because it's like the truth is out there. The truth has been there. Right? The truth is out there. Absolutely. My work sometimes, in a lot of different ways, we talk about this notion of mindsets and and the power of our minds and how it influences what we take into our hearts and what we believe and our actions, of course. And for many people who were part of the 50 million people that amassed the views of George Floyd's death over that one weekend and people who have started to really wrestle with the truth of the racist society that is America and globally the racist policies that exist they are starting to really understand that if I'm not fully taking it in, what if like we teach people this idea of like, just try on this new mindset, try on the idea that racism is real and that the thing that your friend told you about, like how they're trailed in the store or how I'll never forget the experience I had with the NYPD when, uh, 
I haven't brought this up in a long time because I've tried to push it in a certain space, but my horrific interaction with a cop who literally would not look me in my eyes and spoke to me like I had a gun in the car for doing nothing. Like I would tell my friends, try on the idea that what I'm telling you is absolutely real. And the reason why I came to your birthday party then crushed and unable to really speak is because of the story I'm telling you about what happened to me on the way to celebrate you. On the way to celebrate you, the police tried to diminish my spirit. And for nothing other than the fact that I was a Black woman. I am in my Black skin. So try that on. And now that you've tried it on, you've tried on this outfit, you tried on this mindset, do other things that go on or that that accompany that outfit. Try on some other things. Put on a bracelet. So that means listen to this podcast. Listen to the 1619 podcast for a second. Now that you're wearing this new shirt and you've, you're listening, you know, you've got this bracelet that listens, that's like the podcast. How does that sound together? How does that look together? Now I want you to try on this book. I want you to try on how to be an anti-racist. I want you to sit with it. As you try on these different things, as you pull different things to try to actually not discredit, but affirm the stories you're being told, Mm, see what mm -hmm. that can do for your awareness of your own lived experience and other people's. Yes. I love that so much when we are seeking to confirm and not seeking to deny. And that can just take the awareness to such a different place that allows it to almost be forced to turn into action, which is what we're going to get into later in this series. But it needs to be, to your point, a different type of awareness. It needs to be an awareness that seeks confirmation. Mm-hmm in order for it to bear the fruit of actually being useful. Now, the reason why I want to do this journey in the first place is awareness can just sound like, yeah, I read the story. Next step on the list? No, you didn't internalize it actually, because you didn't fully sit in the awareness with a desire to confirm and seek more information. I'm kind of curious because I've had a lot of these conversations with people who I would call like, just coming to know that racial injustice is is a thing. And I'm curious how you've handled those conversations. What are those conversations like? Do those conversations come to you or do those people sort of, I don't know if this is the person that I need to talk to about just discovering racism is real. I, I really believe in boundaries because I think every time you say a no, you're saying yes to something else. And you know this about me right now in this season, I am a new mom and I am exploring a new season of my own purpose. And so I've had to say yes to different kind of care for myself, which meant I'm saying no to certain kind of conversations. And I think I haven't even had to explicitly say that, but I think my energy has just lended itself to my friends, my white friends who are earlier in their stages of racial identity development, knowing that, hey, I'm not going to have this conversation with Jovian. She's actually said plenty of times that we should be in cahoots with one another. There are resources that are out there. I'm going to do that first. And then in a way to continue our genuine relationship as things come up and you want to explore topics and ideas or share learnings, I'm all here for that because I hold privileged identities myself. And I think it is really important that we, as we can, hold space for each other's learning and development like in in personal and safe and brave relationships. That is absolutely key. I believe, especially as a person of faith, that keeping love central and how we support one another and holding one another is critical. I I just don't see it any other way. But 
Yeah, girl, the one-off random conversations, I don't, I can't hold that space while also trying to hold my own heart and the heart of those I most deeply care for right now. You know what I mean? Because also I get it in my trainings. I can see it enough, but which is also why I would say it's important for facilitators when you can to facilitate spaces if they're going to be interracial, that you try to have interracial facilitation as well. That's just a practice Mm -hmm. my firm and my partners we believe in because you got to have somebody else to hold those triggers. You got to have somebody else to hold that space when it feels like, you know what? That elementary question isn't for me right now, but I know somebody else has got your back. Exactly. (laughs) That was just such a good articulation because a lot of times when I'm speaking to white people who aspire to be allies in their enthusiasm and excitement about all of the new information, they can just fully unload on any black person that they see. And if that is not received with like open arms, give me more. I can't even talk to these people. And it's like, whoa. Okay. I love the way that you articulated that like you need to hold space for yourself, first of all, and that there are ways to deepen your awareness that don't require fully unloading every question that you have about race on the next Black person that you see, especially when there isn't a relationship there. So I'm filing that nugget away because we're going to unpack it in the next episode when we talk about the limits of awareness. Let's just talk about the the potential of awareness. So I've been thinking a lot about whether or not it's better to characterize this moment as a light bulb turning on or whether it's actually a dam breaking. One of the recent drops in the bucket that has now become a wall of water was the murder of Trayvon Martin. I think that is when the phrase, the call to action, Black Lives Matter, came to our collective cultural consciousness, thanks to pioneers. Patrice Cullors, Alicia Garza, and Opal Tometi, the founders of the movement. That simple phrase said it so succinctly, but so well. And I'm curious, or I think about that phrase a lot in its simplicity. And as a marketer, if you want a call to action, that's what we need to be working with. Something that is so simple and irrefutable in its truth. So I'm just curious, what do you think it was about that articulation that was so good at driving awareness at a mass scale. Yeah, I, I think it's part of what you said, which is the call to action in it and the statement of fact that it is at the same time. Because before we had heard the phrase Black Lives Matter in the way that it's used, I don't believe we were using the phrase human life matters. That was not a part of the zeitgeist. That wasn't a cultural phenomenon because it was an understood fact. So to identify that a specific group needs to be acknowledged as having their collective lives matter, our collective lives matter as Black people, is, if you think about it, really just insane. Yes. It is the lowest level and this is no diss to these beautiful women who created this, who I love and adore. It's no diss to the statement itself. But when we think about it in context of what else we could say, saying that our lives on earth matter as if any other human has the right to tell me that my life doesn't matter when you didn't create me, when you didn't even create yourself, is audacious. Right. It's just honestly insane. And that in like the truest form of the word, 
that we would think that we would have that kind of privilege to say, no, your life doesn't matter. But it also speaks to human nature. And for thousands and thousands of years, the way colonialism has operated, the way that we've let capitalism dictate the way that we understand value, it in some way, of course, does make sense that we would have to make that statement. Because the truth is, we, there's evidence that has existed as long as America has existed itself, that the Black life does not matter. And certainly not in totality and certainly not in comparison to white lives, right? Um, when, you know, there were laws that said we were three-fifths of a human. I mean, there's just, there's so many things that would tell us that, no, you're, you, you don't really matter. Um, and if you matter, you're going to matter in a certain context, which is going to be connected to your value. And that value is going to be connected to the way I deem it to be valuable. So the work that you do on my behalf, the work that you're doing on my land, the work that you're doing on my time, the work that you're going to do that will increase the money and the value that I can then operate and manipulate. But it's not actually going to be connected to you as a person. You Like you existing on your own intrinsically don't have that value is what we've been told. Exactly. Right. It's the denial of the intrinsic value. It is a denial. Yep. And, and it's like, to your point, the fact that a statement so clearly true could also at the same time be such a radical idea, an idea that people will like basically bear arms to refute the idea that it makes some people so incensed to hear those three words together is because it actually does call out all of American history. American history has said that Black lives actually do not matter. This is why they are able to be enslaved. This is why they are able to be incarcerated. This is why they are able to be second class and should be thankful for being second class. Yeah. Because the American thesis is actually grounded on a foundation that Black life does not matter. Say it. Say it. So, yeah. so, so stating that is, for some people, it is an affront Absolutely. to their, and, and this is why I understand the rebuttal of all lives matter. And I don't buy into this idea that what they're trying to do is clarify that everybody's life matters. No, actually what they're trying to do is say that the thing that you just said is not correct. Yeah. The thing that you said is not correct. The thing that you said is actually also confronting what I've believed deeply for a long time, which is that I am better than your existence. I matter. I matter. Yeah. And which also gets to this whole notion of zero sum game, which we operate with. Exactly. There's not space for everyone to exist in their fullness and wholeness. Yes. And that is that is connected to race. I also think it's bigger than race. I think the way that we have lived as humans in many parts of the world, we've not yet realized how we can't hold each other. It is like, you can exist in your fullness. That means I can't as well. You pursue your dream, then there's no way I can pursue mine. That's why we hear now for the NBA, coaches like Doc Rivers saying how much we keep loving this country, but this country doesn't love us Black. The incredible Nicole Hannah-Jones, prize-winning journalist, shout out alum to UNC Chapel Hill, but also how she would talk about how Black Americans, how we are, and I think she talked about her father in this way, and I would say the same thing for people in my family who are veterans, how just, how deep their patriotism really is to be Black men and women who have caped, who have, who have laid their lives on the line. I think about my grandfathers, my uncles, my cousin right now, my first cousin right now, who is in the Navy, and just the way that they have continually reminded me how much 
there is to believe in terms of the American dream and how yet it is truly that it's still a dream. Yes, It is a dream that will not become the reality unless we, with every generation that persists, make it so. Yes. When we talk about awareness, I, I hope that is a point that we all get to, especially in our generation. And I'll speak to other Black folks right now, too. I mean, I know we're tired. I know many of us feel exhausted for so many reasons. And there is validity to every one of those emotions. And yet, not but, but and yet, the dream still exists that our ancestors believed in. And while we are present and while we know Earth to continue, <laughs> there is an opportunity for us to take up the mantle. And I'm choosing that language carefully in terms of saying responsibility, but there's an opportunity to choose it, to take up the mantle, to move from this will just exist as a dream to saying for our children, Kamala, I'm like you and I, our children, that they will have the reality. It will be no longer just the dream, but they'll be responsible for the upkeep of the reality. Yes. And to your point, this idea that there is so much more work to do, a big part of why I put this journey together in the first place is a recognition that guess what? Black people are not going to build the future that we need by ourselves, right? We actually need other people to pitch in in an active way. And an active form of contribution is not just feeling bad about racism. That actually doesn't serve me. It's not just knowing about it. It's not just posting a black square in your profile page. None of those things actually help to make the dream more real for the children of the black friends that you love so much. Yeah. What actually will make it real is if you progress all the way down the funnel mm -hmm. to the point where you are not just aware of anti-racism as an abstract concept. Right. That you don't think that anti-racism is just not liking racism, but you have actually traveled through the entire journey of deeply knowing what the problem is, going through your mourning process, going through your empathy process, going through your reflection process, thinking about how you can be a part of it, and then finally fully rejecting the premise that would challenge that Black lives don't matter. Yeah. Oof. Right? Oof. Absolutely. We need to get all the way there. All the way there. When I had my son, I, I was like, my patience was already thin. <laughs> but once you have a child, you're like, you know what? I actually need it to happen in this generation because I don't want my son having to record a version of this podcast in 25 years. What would be the point? What would be the point? I was talking to my mother-in-law not too long ago, and she is a freshly retired professor of early childhood education and beautiful Black woman. And she's done so much for our community and all these different kinds of things. And I was talking to her around how, just, I'm trying to interview every elder in my life these days, just getting their perspective, because I think perspective gives you hope for the journey. And clarity for your purpose in the season you're in. And she said, to be honest, I just feel just like I, I'm, I'm sad often. I'm often sad because I did not think that the work that we were doing wasn't going to be enough. And so 
that just it, it continues strike continually strikes me. I think about my mother and the class of women that she was a part of to help integrate Winthrop College back in the day. And we always have this mother-daughter weekend, which is fabulous. Like all the moms, this is so cool, Kamala. So all the moms have daughters. We're all the same age relatively. And we're all really close. And all the moms are close. So we always get together and everything. So we did a virtual celebration this year. And we talked about their struggle and what they're seeing now too. And they expressed some of the similar sentiments to my mother in love, but also expressed that that's why we should have the fierce urgency of now. Yes, yes. Because every day, it is a choice for us to move things forward. It is, it's on us, you know what I mean? I hear you. The awareness that we want to be developed and cultivated in our non-Black brothers and sisters has to be one that goes beyond just police brutality. Absolutely, right? yeah. It needs to be around all of the spaces in which white supremacy is creating deep inequities. We've even seen some broader responses in society, some of which have been almost comical. We saw the Dixie Chicks become the Chicks. We saw NASCAR hire their first chief diversity officer after literally having people with nooses in their stadium for years, right? Mm-hmm. Confederate flags in that stadium for years. Now they have a chief diversity officer. Yep. ABC even hired a Black Bachelor to lead the franchise after 18 years. Wow. Now... Let's be real. Just it was the wrong Black Bachelor. We see you, Mike. We remember you. But still, (laughs) something happened. Lady Antebellum even tried to ditch their name with obvious Civil War vibes to become Lady A, Mm. despite the fact that a Black artist was actually already using that name. Yep. But um, it's the thought that counts. No, it's not actually. (laughs) But... The fact remains, all these things happened and very quickly. Yeah. So I'm curious, what do you think the impact has been of all of these very swift, visible reactions to this new type of awareness where it just felt like all of a sudden across every sector, people were looking at the lack of Black representation and the presence of white supremacist icons, symbols, and representations in their space. How does this increase in activity here? Does it get us anywhere in solving the problem? I I don't want to fully discredit some of the actions that people have taken because I think in your stumbling forward, you're you're moving forward. Dr. Beverly Tatum talks so beautifully and gives us this illustration of a walkway, a moving walkway. I love it. And so for those who don't know, I'll explain, but this moving walkway, and let's imagine that the walkway itself is moving us towards racism, just like that is the way of the world, right? And all the isms that are there, oppressive society. For those of us who, and for people who are just like on the walkway and you're standing there, you're still moving forward in the direction of racism. If you turn around and you're just looking the other way, you're still standing and you're passively still moving towards racism. So I think some of the actions that we see, these these big statements like, oh, we're going to remove Aunt Jemima now, finally, right. we're going to name changes and all that. I think some of that would equate to probably just turning around and not looking at racism anymore. Yeah, like, yeah. This is acceptable, but like, I'm turning my back to it. But yeah, I think we move forward and you stumble in the right direction and continue to move forward when you're challenging and dismantling racist policies and the ideologies that are under these decisions. Like who are the producers in place? 
who are all the people that have made it so we, it took 18 years for a Black bachelor to exist, right? Like what? That's what we need to unpack. That's the stuff that needs yeah. to be unpacked. It's everything from those public sweeping things to things that are more um, granular and but have an enormous effect in our schools. When we continue to see and have guidance counselors who have no business providing any guidance to any children who disproportionately will tell black kids like me that we don't deserve or we're not good enough or our lives and our dreams don't matter enough to apply to X, Y, and Z school. You, there's no way you could get in. There's no, we're not going to waste our resources on that. So you should just apply to insert whatever school that's not on your dream list. It's looking at the data that's present. It's looking at these big decisions that are made. I mean, I was a part of Share the Mic Now campaign, which was you know historic for lots of different reasons and was really beautiful. And I think for those you don't know, it paired Black women like myself with other white women who were notable in different ways. Everyone from like Julia Roberts to Brene Brown. I mean, shout out to Lovey and Glennon and Bose um, and Stacy who founded that incredible movement and had me be a part of it. It was awesome. But Mandy Moore was my partner. Mandy Moore, as you know, Kamala, one of our favorite shows. This is a Listen, girl. Love, love me some Mandy Moore. Love, 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 love. me some Mandy Moore. <laughs> yes. So. And my affection for her is truly deepened in like a real way. And I, I really love our friendship. And one of the things she said recently when she was talking to someone about like her own actions and how she's moving the opposite way on the runway is she's like, now when I am potentially saying yes to a project, instead of just saying yes, I'm going to start asking questions that get underneath what would hold practices of injustice in place. So who are the producers? What's the diversity of the cast? What are the diversity of the people who are in power? Pricing, every, everything for like who's getting paid, what, who are in what positions and starting to make demands of the way she's seen, who she's with, all of that. I think all of the, what could be seen as small things matter because honestly, racism persists in the small ways that also manifest in the big ways. I don't want to overstate some of these things, but I also don't want to discredit them. But if we do them solely, it ain't it. Like that ain't it, but they have to happen in conjunction. And there needs to be conversations around how they even got to that place. Exactly. I don't know. What's up with the chicks? I used to love me some Dixie chicks for a second. Love, right? Love. Lord knows they were, air quotes, radical. They pushed a lot of limits for their fans. And I'm curious how much they've continued to talk about why they were just like, no. Like we're not. Exactly. Exactly. Right. We need the conversation that happens after the name change. And we need to see the commitment that continues after the name change. I totally agree with you. I do actually see it as a pretty important step in the process. But of course, it's not the whole process. It's not the destination. But is it a step in the right direction? Yes, because you're definitely not working on any problems that you don't know exist. And knowing that it exists is at least something towards where we're heading. But we also know that there are still people today in 2020 that are not even up to awareness. They think that this is an overreaction to a few bad apples and a system that's otherwise working fine. So I'm curious, what would you say to any of our listeners who, I don't know, maybe work with someone like this, are related to someone like this? How can they help to bring that person to awareness? Yeah. I think if if someone is already at a place of awareness, I think telling your personal story is important. And back to Dr. Barbara Love, like speaking to what was that moment of cognitive dissonance for you and 
being vulnerable and truly what the reckoning was. And I think for many people, and this happens in our society too, right? Like, golly, sometimes we just, we're not, be honest, we're not leaving each other a lot of space to grow uh, and to learn in public. Like we're not leaving a lot of, you know, we're not leaving each other space to make mistakes in public. It's like you do it once yeah, and then- Yeah, the cancel culture yeah, is the can- so intense right now. It is. Yeah. And I believe the cancel culture is actually antithetical to the beloved community that Dr. King and Mahatma Gandhi and and- Congressman John Lewis would talk about and would urge us into, and which I believe in. I, I don't want to live in a place where we cancel love. And I think love is actually at the core of what learning is about. Learning necessitates giving up a former condition in order for something else to be realized. And so in a way for that to happen around something so difficult and so confronting, like now recognizing that racism isn't just one singular act by a bad apple, but it is the bushel of America that requires that learning happen daily. Like it is a constant process and you need relationship to do that. You need mm-hmm. relationship to get to a place of full liberation. It isn't something you do alone. So I, I'd say to people, invite the vulnerable conversation by Brene Brown beautifully says, vulnerability begets vulnerability. And it is like that cornerstone of courage. And I think when you when you share honestly with other people that you can trust, and even if you can't fully, you take that risk. I would say to white people, y'all need to be taking these risks. Yes, yes. Like the discomfort yes. of like that was tough. That sucks. They didn't hear me out. It does, mm-hmm. and you persist anyway. You persist. You need to put on that badge of armor. Like I'm persisting anyway. So yeah, that's what I would offer. And of course, some of the other books and stuff I named and references. I mean, like. That stuff is prevalent now. Like, it's such a beautiful time to try to be an anti-racist. Like, it is popular. It is on trend. It is available. Like, you don't even have to go far. Amazon is pubbing it every day. And you've got the resources. You you can listen to podcasts. You could read stories for every kind of accessibility that we would need. It's available. You can hear from Austin Channing Brown, who I love. You can listen to that conversation she had with Brene Brown. Look, your faves are in it. Reese Witherspoon. Hello. You know, we could just go down the list. So exactly. Reminding us of the Brene Brown quote, vulnerability begets vulnerability. One of the things that I see with some of my white friends in particular, maybe not close friends, but white people who aspire to be allies, once they get woke, they have no patience for their fellow non-woke white friends. And I'm like, what about the vulnerability of sharing with them that you were where they are? very, very, very recently. And that actually you still remain a work in progress. Like that would be helpful. That would be really helpful. To have a blueprint for actually how to, as opposed to like, I'm just so angry. That's why I never talk to Uncle Joe about politics. I'm like, well, I can't talk to your Uncle Joe about politics. (laughs) So if neither of us is talking to Uncle Joe, then like, and he's about to cast this ballot. Right. Yeah, I, I think you better call Uncle you Joe. You better call him. And if we're going to be honest, let's call a spade the spade. When you refuse to talk to Uncle Joe, what are you actually doing that is perpetuating racism, even in that Correct. decision and in that action? Because it's the privilege of knowing that your life can't be impacted by what Uncle Joe does. Yeah, except for, okay, dinner's not going to be cool today and I got to leave right, the table. Right, right, right. Whatever. But also further, what is the dominant culture norm that you are ascribing to? you're actually upholding. Yeah. Yeah. That sense of urgency, that sense of individualism that like, yeah, I I don't, there's no collective nature in this. I have no responsibility for someone else. All of that kind of stuff. You're just undergirding the system that you purport to want to disrupt. You're so right. Yeah. 
that in itself, you know, avoiding talking about race is the least radical thing you can do. Yeah. It's actually very, very conformist. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I love that, right? Yeah. I, I love that. Mm-hmm. And that might actually work because of the strain of individualism that Americans hold so dear. Mm-hmm. If you, maybe, if, maybe we start telling people that actually like you're being really conformist right now. <laughs> that might be the thing. That might be the thing. You never know. I'm, I'm willing to try it. My mm-hmm. friends call me the white people whisperer because I, I, I really have a lot of time for yeah. it. Yeah. I'm fun. like, I might try that. I might try that. <laughs> I think the last thing that I'll ask before we wrap up is how do you feel like folks can make sure that their own awareness isn't shallow and that they're knowing counts and actually moves us closer to the ultimate goal, which is an anti-racist society. I'm going to quote somebody who I tragically, it's just been recent that I've come in contact deeply with their work, but I just in love with Adrienne Marie Brown. And she says so eloquently, release any belief that your mind will liberate you from patriarchy. And I think you could also connect in their racism as they're connected. The change required now is not something you can learn or do with your mind alone. It is something you must practice with your body, emotions, soul. Only consistent practice will rewire your mind and liberate your life. Come on. Well, then there's nothing I can say to that, but amen. And pass the collection plate. <laughs> right. Building fund. I just, I have to call her into this because I think that's just so beautiful. It does require your wholeness. It's a different way of living. This is not just about reading. It's not just about, you know, listening. It actually is like the way that you show up has to be fundamentally different. I kind of like, you know, the analogy that I use is if anybody's ever come in contact with a newly born again Christian. Oh, yeah. (laughs) The level of on one that they are. That was me back in the day. Fourth grade. On fire. (laughs) Literally, oh, I don't wear this color anymore because in the Bible, it's like uh, they literally, the whole, everything about them is changed. Yeah. This is what we need. Actually, we need anti-racist fanatics (laughs) that are looking in every space of their lives and being like, I would have gone to that dinner party, but you don't have no black friends. I mean, I you know I would have I would have t- taken I, that movie. I love it. But there's no producers of color. But there's no producers. Yeah, I you know what I I can rock with you on that analogy, and I'll push it and say, like the energy that comes when you're newly converted to whatever that is. Yes. <laughs> I surely remember that time. Because shout yes. out to fourth grade Jovian, but also it's got to settle into the maturity. Yeah, who understands you're in it for a long haul that there will be backslides, but those backslides don't distract you from your goal, that you press on towards the mark of the high calling, as it says in the Bible, that you've got the purpose centered in your mind, and that is the guide for you. That's what calls you back. And you are mature enough in your faith. You're mature enough in your belief in justice, in equitable world, where everyone is seen, heard, and valued, where that is what drives you to believe that I need community to do it. And so you honor the community that's available to you. You honor that community by pouring it in, uh, pouring into that community, and also taking and, and distributing uh, to other people so they can find wholeness and a sense of community as well. That I believe in the beloved community 
that has been beautifully painted for us by our ancestors. And I would just call into people who are on this journey right now and thinking about, well, you know, I think I kind of see things now. I want to do something differently. What do I do? I want you to, my encouragement, my deep encouragement will be use your purpose as your guide and to move past the fight or flight of it all. You know, fight or flight would try to invite you to think that I've got to run away and like your body will tell you when you've been called a racist or when your body wants to bring on that hot feeling of shame and disappointment that like, oh my gosh, I can't have this conversation with Uncle Joe anymore. And I don't, I got to get out. I got to get out. That there's something else that's calling you actually into it again. There's something else that's reminding you that, no, you don't run from this. You run towards it. I love it. I love it. I love it. So Joe, Ian, every <laughs> conversation that I have with you calls me to a higher level of awareness myself. So I want to thank you for sharing this with our audience today. We are just getting started. This is our first episode of From Woke to Work, unpacking that anti-racist journey. And I think if this is how we're starting, it's going to be a good run, y'all. So next time, we're going to talk about that flip side. There's levels to this. Next time, we're really going to unpack Awareness is not our goal, right? Why isn't awareness good enough? Why do we still need to go deeper and deeper into the funnel? All right, tune in next time to find out. Thank you guys. I'm Kamala Avila Salmon, your host, and I'm so excited to take this journey with you. Talk to you soon. Thanks for joining us and for making it this far. As always, I'm Kamala Avila Salmon, and you can follow me on social media at TheRealKS1. Subscribe now wherever you listen to podcasts, and don't forget to rate us to help more people find the show. From Woke to Work was produced by me, Kamala Avila Salmon, in partnership with Julian Lewis and TJ Bonaventura at StudioPod. Edits were made by Noda Lab. Our amazing artwork was designed by Tommy Gomez. And this fire track I'm speaking on was produced by Dave Contrap. Until next time.